Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for I am a friend of mine, has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if one asks for an egg, will instead give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father... Lord, as we read through this text tonight, as we talk through this text, as we then go into small groups and discuss this text, Father, I pray that you would be glorified. I pray that this would not be a story about our persistence, this would not be a story about our uh, well-doing or about our uh, ability to follow directions, but that this would be just a pointer to the type, uh, uh, to the God you are, not the type of God, but to the God that you are that you love your children, that you desire to bless your children, and that you have given and are giving and always give abundantly to your children. I pray that would be how we know you, that we would know you as a God who is faithful, who has accomplished salvation on our behalf, not because of our efforts or our merits or what we have done, but because of what you have done in Christ Jesus, our elder brother and, of course, our Lord. I thank you for Jesus Christ. I thank you for what he has done, first his life, of excellence than with his death and defeating death and his resurrection where he did defeat death. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so as I was thinking about this story, and it's somewhat of where we started last week, but I want to begin there tonight. Um, I I was thinking about what a father is, because that's how Christ starts the prayer. Our father, or father, hallowed be your name. And so I was thinking about what a father is and what a father isn't. And so probably none of you have seen it. I don't think it was in the theaters very long, but it's a movie that I find uh, to very much enjoy. I think it's it's probably on my top ten list just because I I am a sucker for coming-of-age stories as well as, like, uh, vintage-type things. And so that's why, like, Stranger Things uh, sucked the world in because it was the vintage 80s and 90s uh, era. And then uh, I I actually think it started in the 70s, but that's not the point. Uh, And so, like, in this movie, it starts with a Jeep Wagoneer with wood paneling down the side and that green on the top. And I love that vehicle, and so that's part of why I love that movie. But... In the beginning scene, it's a super, you don't know anything of the context yet. All you know is there's a young boy and what looks like his mother sleeping in the front seat. And he is there with uh, another, another girl who's sleeping in the middle seat. And he's in the way, way back of the Jeep Wagoneer, hence the name of the movie. There was a point where there would be a back seat that faced out so you could somewhat see the traffic that was following behind you. That was the way, way back of the car. And so that's where the movie gets its name, but it's the way, way back. And Steve Carell is in the front seat. He's looking forward and he begins talking to this boy. We don't know it yet, but Steve Carell is dating his mom. So he's not his father, uh, but he's seeking to be his father, of course. If dating goes well and they are to get married, he will become the stepfather, right? That's how marriage and remarriage work. 
And so he is looking at his son. I, I wish I could remember his name. Uh, I think his name is Trevor. He says, Trevor, and he's looking at the mirror, and he says, Trevor, on a scale of 1 to 10, where do you think you lie? And Trevor is obviously uncomfortable. This isn't his father. This isn't even his stepfather. It's his mother's boyfriend asking him to rate himself on a scale of 1 to 10. And he says, Trevor, where, where do you find yourself? Where, on a scale of 1 to 10, being honest, where would you find yourself? And Trevor, still incredibly uncomfortable by the sentiment, finally mumbles out, I don't, I don't know, a 5. And so what you see about Trevor is that he doesn't have a lot of confidence in himself. He doesn't say 10. He doesn't say 12. He doesn't say, I'm God's gift to women. He already has a chip on his shoulder. He doesn't feel good or confident in himself. That's the coming of age part of the story. And so he tells his mother's boyfriend, I'm a 5, I think. And Steve Carell, I hate it when he plays bad roles, but he looks in the mirror and he looks back at Trevor and says, I think you're a three. And that's the scene. They're, they continue on the road trip and they come home. But my point is, in bringing that up, is so evidently, Steve Carell is not a father to Trevor. He's not loving towards him. He's not kind to him. He's not looking out for him. He's not, when hearing Trevor's five, seeking to build him up or encourage him in any way. In fact, he belittles him and he strikes him down and he takes away from the little bit of confidence he does have in himself by being an adult figure in his life and somewhat mocking the answer he gave. I bring that up because tonight as we look at the application that Christ gives for the Lord's Prayer, as we review the Lord's Prayer, what we quickly look at and what we quickly see in the text is the type of father that our Lord is. He isn't one to belittle. He isn't one to chastise. He isn't one, as, as Christ puts it, when asked for an egg, would give us a scorpion. He loves us. He has pursued us. He has shown us that love at the cost of his son. And so this is the God we're going to be discussing. This is the love in which a, a, a true father has for his children. That's what we're interesting ourselves with tonight. So, as Christ last week taught them to pray, I know we went over this last week, but this is a brief review before we get into tonight's text. Uh, there, there's two reasons why the disciples would ask Christ to pray. The first is, most evidently, they're his disciples, they're his students, they're seeking to be like Christ, and so they want to pray like Christ prays. There's more um, setting and context for that in the sense that Christ is the Son of God, Christ is the Messiah, they see him as a good teacher, and so more than just being their teacher, he is the perfect teacher, and so they're trying to seek exactly how he prays, that they may mimic that and then pray as excellently as Christ prays. You know, there, there's no one else that prays as good as Christ does because he understands it. He communes. He's perfectly presently there, and he's communing with his Father and with the Holy Spirit all in once. And it's a, it's a manifestation of the Trinity as it existed in previous uh, eternity, as they all existed in heaven together. What I just said was really complicated, but my point in all of that is Christ is a perfect prayer. There's nothing to be desired with how he prays. And so they're going to him and asking him to teach them to pray. And so that's not uncommon uh, for the disciples to teach any other religious setting, this is reason number two, any other religious setting, they would ask their teachers to teach them how to commune or how to pray. The Gentiles and pagans would teach them how to pray. The Gentiles or, or pagans who are outside of the camp who are doing whatever sacrifices underneath the sun they're doing are looking to someone to teach them how to do their sacrifices in prayer that when that person dies, they may take over and then become the person who then teaches the person how to paganly sacrifice and pray. Right? That's what we see with religious cults. That's what we see with religious organizations. That's what we're seeing here with Christ and his disciples. Not that this is a cult or in any way pagan. It's that they're going to the person who has authority over them, their teacher. And so those are the two reasons. To be like Christ and because teachers, all teachers, would teach their students to pray. 
Christ, if we want to read through the three verses, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. We see three or four things summed up here. First, God is our father. There is a relationship active there. It's not that he is going to become our father. It's that he is our father. These people are praying as being accepted into the kingdom because of what Christ has done. They're praying to God as their father because of the grafting in. Of course, these people are Jewish, and so the grafting doesn't necessarily apply. But they have been welcomed back to the kingdom. So they're praying to their father. There's an intimate relationship between a father and a son, and they're praying in that intimate relationship. Secondly, he tells us of the, uh, the holiness of God's character, how his name is to be hallowed. Now, we talked about that last week, and I apologize for the incredibly long Mexican restaurant display. But what we need to know about God's holiness and his character is that it is so far apart from where we are. There's no, worth, there's no reason to magnify or even try to build ourselves up to the level of holiness that Christ has and that God has. He's hallowed. He is set apart from the rest of his creation as over-creation, as having created creation. I was thinking about like superheroes and how they can do amazing things, but none of the superheroes we see are actually like creating existence. And some of you comic book nerds in here are like actually Adam Warlock, and we're not going to go down that route. My point is like they have these super cool powers. They're not the creator omni-god that we see in scripture who created every aspect of existence. Who if we say to the father, I don't know if you've ever heard this, a man looks at God and says, hey, I think I can build a better man than you. And he gets down in the dirt and starts to figure together what his idea of the perfect specimen would be. And God looks at the man and says, yeah, but you're using my dirt. That's the point. He is so far set apart. He created the dust that then he turned into man in his image. God is hallowed, set apart, reverent. He's reverent. He's holy. We are to revere him. Next, we see that uh, we're praying, uh, your kingdom come. We're praying that his will would be over us. Before our efforts, before what we want, before what we desire, we would pray that his will would be done for our lives. The context isn't necessarily given here as it is in Matthew 6. Uh, Hallowed be your name, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done. But that's the same sentiment. Let your kingdom come. Next, we see these... um, needs that we do have that we're praying in subjection to the father as we've submitted to him and his will with your kingdom come we're asking that he would supply our daily bread not that we would ask for a year's supply but that he would sustain us daily that we may not reject him by having too much and we may not uh, uh, call out against him because we have too little we're asking that he would provide for us daily then we see a supernatural need uh, that we have of him that he would forgive us of our sins our evils against him Notice, and this, we're going to skip a little bit to the end, when Christ in verse 13 says, If you then who are evil, and so we know our character, and what we're praying is that he would forgive us of our wickedness, that he would rid that chasm from between us, as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And then we ask, lastly, again in subjection to the Father, but really in just a great acknowledgement of who he is, we're saying, lead us not into temptation, Lord, guide my feet. We talked about this as we walked out uh, uh, last week. The idea that the enemy is within the gates. We are our own worst enemies. We aren't dependent upon the vices of the world. We are not dependent on demons. We aren't dependent on the devil to find sin. We look for it. We sin by default. And so we're saying here, Father, lead us not to temptation, please. And Carrie Underwood's word, take the wheel. That's what we're saying, okay? 
I think the way I want to sum up this review is through a prayer. It's St. Patrick's. This is a famous prayer of his, and I think it really fits this lead us not into temptation well. Christ be with me, Christ within me, Christ beside me, Christ before me. Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort me and restore me. Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in hearts of all that love me, Christ in mouth of friend or stranger. Every aspect of our world, every aspect of our reality, every aspect of our life, we should pray that the Father would be with us, protecting us from temptation and guiding us, quite literally taking us by the hand. And so now we're going to get into tonight's text. As I mentioned last week, I'm saying it again now, it's somewhat divided pretty plainly. And so there's two parables here that we're going to discuss tonight. The first is the parable of two friends, and we're going to, I'm going to read it now. It's verses 5 through 8 if you're following along. Also, if you're not, there's Bibles up at the front that I want you to grab, and there's some more in that cardboard box. And so if you don't have a Bible, I'd welcome you to grab one. I would ask that you grab one. Okay, so verses 5 through 8. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, so notice there's somewhat of an objection here. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend yet. So there's a yet, not because he's his friend yet. Because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. And so there's several things we want to point out in regards to this parable. Uh, the four points I have are that it's not due to obligation. We're going to talk more about the agreement that it is, needs to have with the Lord's uh, character, the faithfulness we see of the Father here, and then lastly, that God is not a genie. And we'll, we'll dive into that in a minute. So what we see here in that it's not due to obligation. So that was the yet I talked about. He says, though not because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence. So it isn't because he feels obligated by some sense of relationship he has with the man coming to him, right? And so he says, uh, notice who you are in the story, is, or who the crowd is in the story. Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight? And so you're the person in this home. And so the idea is that you're in this home, you're fast asleep, and somebody has come to you in need. And what he's telling them is... If you won't help him out because he's your friend, all right? It has nothing to do with your obligation and that you want to maintain social ties or you want to keep the relationship solid or that you want things to be good. What we're pointing out here is Christ is making these objections and making these points about why the man is doing what he's doing is because in this story, even though it, it, like, if you break things down in Scripture as they're comparing to God's character and his sovereignty, you often can get lost in the weeds with all the different a point you'd have to make, and so we don't want to do that. But the point is, God is not obligated. God has no obligation to give to us when we ask of him. We aren't twisting his arm. And so a lot of times when people think of prayer, and Martin Luther, one of my heroes, said uh, he, he, was, he was on his horseback ride, he was going through the woods, he was going through the country, and a great lightning storm came upon him. And he cried out. He was out in law school at the time. I don't know if you all knew that Martin Luther was going to be a lawyer, but he left that to pursue the uh, monastery. And so he says, in that moment, as the lightning strikes, it's a, supposedly it threw him off his horse, and he says, spare me, and I'll become a monk. And so often that's how we think of prayer. We think of this obligation that the Lord has. I will do this for you if you do this for me. And that's incorrect. 
So this guy's what he's trying to point out in this is that the friend isn't saying, hey, we're friends. Because we're friends, you owe this to me. No, 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 that's not the point he's making. And so we need to continue. What point is he making? So he says, because of his impudence, and by the way, Todd, you're an English guy. Have I been pronouncing that word right? Okay, good, because I realized last week, and I should have looked it up, but I didn't this week. I never looked up how to pronounce it, and I've been worried that it's impudence or something else. But anyway, because of his impudence, um, th- that's the point he's making. It's really a thing about being in uh, consistency with the character of the Lord. So he says it's not because of his friendship. It's not because of his r- role to you and that you have obligated God in some way that he must and has to take care of you. That's not what's happening. You aren't putting the Lord in a box. You aren't pinning him into a corner. You aren't caging him up. There's no action in granting your prayers that he's doing because he feels like he has to. The reason the Lord grants our prayers is because he wants to, because he loves us, because he loves his children, because he wants to shower them graciously. And so what we're seeing here is we need to look at the word impudence. Does anyone know what that word means? Just raise your hand. Don't say it out loud. I didn't either. That was a word that I was like, I'm going to read through that because I don't know what it means. But it's actually central to the understanding of the passage. And so what he's saying is, sorry, let's translate before I go back in. Often, this verb, and I don't have it in Greek because it would, uh, I would definitely pronounce that wrong, but often, uh, specifically in the NASB 95, this word is translated to mean persistence because of his persistence. But that is, again, uh, what we would see and uh, what I want to plainly say is that this, we don't believe in a word of faith gospel and that the harder we pray about something or the more we pray or the more faith we have, that's why God grants our wishes. That's not what we see communicated in the scripture. And so the NSB 95 translates to just to say, because of the man's persistence, in other words, he's knocking at the door, he's going to wake your family and disturb them. No, that has nothing to do with it. What has to do with it is because it's not because of his impudence or his, because of his shamelessness, to not be found shameless. And so you, some of you may say, okay, well, now what you're saying is that it is obligating the Lord. And that's my point. It's, it's not. The man does get up to help him. It isn't because the man's continually knocking on the door. It's not because the man's continuing to beg. It's because the man comes to him and is in need, and the man has an ability to grant that need, right? Okay, and so that's where you can quickly go back to and say, okay, well, that does sound like word of faith, where we declare we have needs and somebody has to grant it. Well, let's talk about Middle Eastern culture. Specifically, where Christ is, it is common that if you're talking about what is here, which is that it's a one-room family because the man is asleep at night with his family, what would be often is that the houses that were across the street and down the way and within that small village would all be family members. And so in, in one sense, when a traveler comes to visit, it's reflective on everyone within that city because they're all Family, and so typically if a traveler would come to visit, what it means is a family member is coming to visit another family member. And so that's some context in terms of what these relationships look like. But the point here is, uh, but because of his impudence, it would be a strike against the host who's sleeping with his family if he did not give bread for his friend who is in need of it. It would be an objection of his character. It would be inconsistent with his character. It would be unheard of in this region because this man uh, has something that he knows that he's supposed to do. And instead, he's choosing not to do it for the sake of not waking his family or not waking his kids or whatever else. And just so you know, none of you young ones in here have kids of your own. Some of you in here have had little siblings or currently have little siblings. And so you do understand that there's a point in the night where when I'm talking to my wife, she will look at me and say, be quiet. Because I often talk very loudly, and we have a six-month-old asleep. 
And I don't know if it's ever been 10 o'clock and you put him down at 8 o'clock and you woke him up at 10, but it's not like he just goes right back to sleep. And it's not like a 13-year-old where you can just be like, hey, shut up and go to bed. He has no sense of reason. So he starts screaming and now we're up for two more hours because I decided I need to yell at Fortnite, right? And so that's why she is consistent to say that. It's not, that's not a check on my wife. It makes sense that she would ask me to be quiet, just clarifying. And so it's not consistent with the man's character if he was not to grant this request of bread that his friend is making of him. And so the point Christ is making here after talking about the Lord's Prayer and then telling this seemingly random story about a friend who's in need of bread for another friend is that the Lord, being consistent in his character, is gracious to grant where there is need. Where you are praying like this, where you are praying in the will of the Father, you are earnestly asking for his kingdom to come, you're revering his name, and you're going out to his Father, you're praying, and he says, as Father, as a loving Father, as a gracious Father, you have a need, and I can fill that need. Whatever it is, whether it be food, whether it be water, whether it be uh, mental peace, the Lord has the ability to grant the need, and he grants the need when he sees it as a need. And so some of you, uh, it, it's because of the impudence of the Lord or this man, because he refuses to act in such a way that is inconsistent with his character. It, and so what we see of the faithfulness of the Father is that it would be a strike against the character of God not to give where his children have need. If we know God is loving, if we know he is kind, if we know he is good, if we know he is gracious, if we know that he is a giving Father, we know that he's not hateful of his children. We know he doesn't, isn't mean to his children. We know he isn't a bad God. Why? Because for him to be these things would be inconsistent with the rest of these things. And so the Lord has let us know who he is in his word. He has let us know what is consistent with his character. Matter of fact, the reason the prophet Jonah gets so angry about the repentance of the Ninevites is because he, in his anger, lashing out, says, I didn't want to come here because I knew you were a gracious and merciful God. Those are his objections. Because that's consistent with God's character. And so it would be inconsistent of God if in a time of need and his uh, children are asking for it that he would not grant it. Okay, and so here's what earlier I made a comment that said it's not word of faith preaching. And that's where very quickly the points I'm making, people will run from here and you'll go out and you'll get on your knees and you'll pray to God and you'll ask him for something silly or something really endearing. But I detest word of faith preaching, mainly because it takes prayer away from being the central focus on the faithfulness of God, his goodness of his children, his love of his children, and what's it, what uh, focus then is, uh, be, manifest or becomes real is that your ability to pray hard, your ability to sweat, sweat when you pray, your ability to pray earnestly, that's what measures whether or not the prayer is granted. Nothing about the Christian religion has anything to do with your ability to get things done or earn your good standing before the Father. Everything that I want to tell you about this book, that I want to tell you about Christianity, that I want to tell you about the life, death, and resurrection of Christ is where he said, you aren't enough. I have demanded perfection. You can't be enough, but you do not have to be. Because my son is enough for you. His sacrifice has done more for you than you could ever hope to attain for yourself. I am a faithful God. I said in the garden that I would vanquish sin, and I have done it. So please come to me, lay down your burdens, lay down yourself, die to yourself, 
and surrender to Christ Jesus. That's the message we see in Scripture, that Christ is able, that God is able to save, not that we can save ourselves. And so this idea of word of faith preaching in terms of we can pray these things earnestly or with such a level of um, desire that the Lord would grant them, right? Y'all, there are times in my life, and this is like I'm somewhat ashamed admitting this, but it probably is true of many of you, but maybe not. There are times in my life where I have bought a lottery ticket and I have prayed because I know that the, if the Lord wanted to, I could win the lottery. <laughs> and I've prayed just that, Lord, you are gracious, you are kind, please let your will be done, but please also let it be in your will that I win this $1.2 billion Powerball. <laughs> please. Because that would make my life so much easier in terms of financially. There's times in my life where I've prayed silly things like that and asked that the Lord would bless me and he chose not to in that way. That doesn't mean he's not a loving God. And some of you say, okay, that's the lottery, but about deeper things. There's, there's a time in my life, uh, within the last couple of years when Sarah and I were dating, where I held the hand of my dying aunt and prayed that the Lord would heal her. Through tears, prayed that he would heal her. And he didn't. And I loved my Aunt Sue. And the Lord loves my Aunt Sue. And he chose not to save her. I don't understand it. I don't know why that wouldn't have been for my best interest. But what I do know, because of what I know about God, is that is what was best because it's what came to pass. He chose not to save her. Sorry, he chose not to heal her physically in that way. But what I do know is that upon her passing, I think four days later, that she was perfectly healed. That she had no more worries about her. Thirdly, one scriptural example we see is in Luke 1, 19 through 25, an old woman named Elizabeth who for years has been praying that the Lord would bless her womb with a child. In her old age, she was shamed above women because she was unable to bring the child that she so desired. She was cast off. She was seen with reproach. And it wasn't until her very elder age that the Lord granted that she would have a child. And she cries out in Luke 1, 25, the Lord in his grace has taken away my reproach among women because he has finally given her what she has been praying for all those years. Now that is an example where persistence worked together with the sovereignty of the Lord to give somebody what they've asked. But what we know is that all things, this is in Romans eight twenty eight, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. This promise is true of those who belong to Christ Jesus, and it's true for those who make up the church. We don't always understand God's timing. We don't always understand his reasoning. But what we do know is that whatever the Lord brings to pass is for our good and for his glory. And it's in those two truths that we should rest, because it's those two truths that Scripture proclaims. So as we look at the story here among uh, the friend who is willing and finally gives up, or not finally, but does get up and get his friend breast. Uh, not breast, bread, as a gift to him as he's entertaining uh, the traveler, is that it would be a strike on his character not to, and the Lord in his gracious ways and his loving kindness of his people wants to grant where we have need. Let's move on to the second parable in verses 9 through 13. Uh, I, I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, 
We'll give him a scorpion. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Your earthly fathers do have a knowledge of their son. They have a knowledge of what he likes, what he desires, what he wants. And typically, if they're giving them a gift, they operate within that mindset. When I was in... uh, I don't know, third grade probably. When I was much younger, I remember Christmas came. Uh, often we get, and this may be the way, is at your house maybe you get a plethora of gifts. Maybe you don't get any. But at our uh, family Christmas, typically, uh, like I would get socks or something that I needed. And then our mom and dad would both buy like each of us a pretty uh, a good gift that you would consider was for that person. And so one year for Christmas, me and Park both got a gift that looked like it was in the exact same box. They handed one to Park and they handed one to me. And Park opened his first, and it was an RC car that could go like 45 miles an hour, and it was incredible. And I loved it. And I thought, oh, great, I'm going to get that RC car too. And I opened up my box, and it was a globe. And I remember thinking, what the heck? It was a globe. It had this nice little pin. You could click on the sides of it. And I remember my brother-in-law, Thomas, asking me, hey, I'm not going to tell your parents. Between you and me, would you rather have, <laughs> would you rather have the remote control car or the globe? <laughs> And I lied. I looked at him and said, I'd rather have a globe. <laughs> um, I was a history guy. I liked geography. I liked that kind of thing. And so my parents <laughs> bought me a gift that they thought I would enjoy with my devices. What they were really saying, uh, what I could look back at now is saying, hey, you're the smart one, Park's the dumb one. But we know based on academic record that that's not true. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> In our stocking, Park got a uh, six-squared Rubik's Cube, and I got an eight-tiered Rubik's Cube. So... They really point out intelligence in different ways. <laughs> but I really wanted that RC car. And, but my, my dad loved me, and he was trying, and my mom was trying to get me a gift that would, uh, that would be good for me, that I would want to play with. God's knowledge of us and what we desire, what we need, what we have, goes far beyond what your earthly parents could ever hope to imagine. We, th- they do look out for you. They do love you, and they love you specifically. They love you intimately, and they know things about you, and they want to know uh, everything about you for the most part. And they want to bless you in those ways. If you want to wrestle, they want to buy you shoes. If you want to play basketball, maybe they'll buy you a ball. If you're a football guy, they'll buy you a a, a pro football. I don't know. But they want to bless you in ways that are good to you and that they can be good parents to you. But God's knowledge of us goes further than this. And so as as, uh, Luke is making this distinction here, as Christ is speaking this distinction here about what earthly father, when their son asks for bread would instead give him uh, a serpent, or when he asked for an egg, will give him a scorpion. The point is, God is not somebody who is maliciously looking at his children and offering him these terrible things as a measure of uh, whether it be humor or harm. God is a loving and gracious Father who, in all things, seeks to bless you, and he gives freely based on what, and this is what's important, based on what he knows and what he dictates that you need. It's not dictated upon what you think you need. It's dictated upon what he knows you need because of his love for you. The way that I I, I see this most plainly, and I know I've already referenced it, but me winning the lottery would probably have done very little for my sense of uh, sanctification. I read that psalm, uh, I'm sorry, that proverb last week. Uh, I didn't include it in the slides today, but David is, not David, Solomon is saying, two things I ask of you, Lord, deny them not before I die. Uh, remove from me all falsehood and lying. And then he says, give me um, neither riches nor poor. Make me neither rich nor poor, lest I be rich and deny you saying, who is God? Because if I were to win the lottery, it's very quickly that I would find myself self-sufficient and I would seek to think of where I need the Lord in my life because I see myself as my own God. 
And he also says, but give me neither poverty, lest I steal and profane the name of the Lord my God. And so it goes back to what the original prayer says. Give us this day our daily bread. That's how we are to pray to the Father that he would provide for us in our need. And that is how the Lord provides for his children. Y'all, the Lord is faithful. He is just, he is good, and he is kind. He gives graciously, he gives bountifully. And we need to know that as he gives to his children, he does so based on what he knows your needs to be. Not necessarily what you think your needs are. And so where do we see his goodness most poured out? Where do we see it most demonstrated? In Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 19-22 says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. It's true. From the beginning of time, since the fall in the garden, so a little after the beginning of time, what we've seen is that mankind is in desperate need of the goodness of God. We're in desperate need for our sinfulness, our rejection, our vileness to be cast away so that we could once again commune with the Father and worship him freely. What we needed was Christ Jesus to do away with the chasm that separated us from the love of God. And what we see is that is exactly what God gave us. In Romans 5, 8, we see that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Again, going back to this idea of persistence or anything being gained on our efforts, it doesn't say while we were seeking to be sinless. It doesn't say while we were seeking to be perfect. It doesn't say while we were seeking to please the Lord. It says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us because he knew our need. And so what we see in John 3.16 is that because of his love for us, he sent his son that he would die, that we would be with him in eternity. We needed to be reunited to the Father. We needed reconciliation. We needed redemption from our sin. And that's exactly what we got through Christ Jesus. To go back to the beginning, what, what had happened, rather than us being a three before the eyes of the Lord, rather than us being a two or a one or having no worth whatsoever, we were enemies of God. In terms of the scale to be listed, we didn't fit because we were that far outside of his mercy and grace. But God loved us. God loved us so much that he sent his son that through the penal substitution or through Christ Jesus taking the weight of sin, we may be seen as fully righteous because of what he has done for us. Rather than being condemned, we are now seen as righteous and he has grafted us into the kingdom and he has called us his own. That's why at the beginning, the prayer starts with, Father, hallowed be your name. Because we're no longer cast out from the kingdom but we are adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. So I want to read verse 13, and then we're going to end. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The answer is much more. 
Those who are after him are after him because of his love on them, and they surely will be saved. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we go into small groups, that we would have conversation that is glorifying to you and edifying for us. I pray that we would speak about your son and his work on the cross, and that truth would be known to everyone in this room. That they would know that this life, Lord, this life is meaningless apart from what you have done for us through Christ Jesus, apart from our ability to worship you as a good God because of how you have made us in your image. Father, I pray that we would glorify you with our conversation and that you would soften every sinful heart in this room, that we may become sons and daughters of the living God. I thank you for Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.